can go to Genesis 47, and uh, we'll start right around verse 11 in a moment. But first, I thought you might want to have some visual things to put in your memory bank regarding Egypt uh, from this time period, about the uh, 1800s BC. Um, there's no way in the world you'd recognize this. This is a tomb in Egypt that comes from just a few decades before the Israelis arrived. Now, you've heard me talk about this tomb several times. And this is the reason why. Do you remember this? Do you remember the wall paintings and uh, the, uh, the Semites uh, coming down to Egypt uh, that, uh, from around the same time that Joseph was there? This is the tomb that those drawings were found in. Uh, so this is the, it's the Beni Hassan grave complex, uh, but this is the tomb uh, of a specific regional leader in Egypt. And so the reason I kind of wanted to start talking about life in Egypt uh, is because we're going to talk about those uh, regional leaders losing their power uh, during the time of Joseph. Uh, so when you go inside the tomb, uh, it's interesting. There's these paintings about life uh, for this leader. Now, it's hard to see, but up in the right-hand corner is a picture of his wife sitting down and keeping track of all the people that are involved in the household. And so you can see all the people going around taking care of things uh, for this couple and for their family. Um, this is a little diorama that was found in the tomb. Uh, kind of looks like it might have been done by a kid. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it were. Uh, but you can see it's got common people going around taking care of daily business uh, from this time period. And you can see the pretty typical clothing that we've been talking about, that little white skirt that everybody kind of wears. And then the, the fake head, the fake hair seems to be everywhere. Uh, the little mop up on your head. Uh, one of the things apparently this guy liked was what? Can you tell? This is, this is all the different wrestling moves. Uh, so apparently he was a big wrestling fan. And so that becomes part of his uh, wall paintings in his, in his grave. And then another thing apparently he enjoyed was sports. Now this is a weird looking sport. I don't know anything about it. I couldn't find anything uh, to describe it. It clearly involves hand-to-hand -hand contact uh, but there's also some guys running around with some sticks, and the sticks, if you can actually see it pretty clear, they've got little forks on the end of uh, the sticks. So I guess it's got something to do with whatever the object of the game is. Uh, and uh, so he, he was apparently into that sort of thing as well. I like this painting just because it was fun. Uh, this is a whole bunch of the birds of Egypt from this time. Uh, the one down in the le left bottom, that's a hoopie. Uh, those are up in Israel as well. And you can kind of see a hawk there as well and some others. Um, a falcon, it looks like. Uh, and it's an acacia tree, very common tree uh, down in that part of the world. Which the guy apparently was into hunting. Um, and so you've got uh, this uh, showing going out with a bow and he's shooting antelope and uh, he's got a dog, a couple of dogs that are running for him and he's got people helping him skin things out. Uh, so th when these guys that were fairly well to do uh, did up their tombs, they wanted to show all the things that they were inter interested in intrigued in. Um, then, uh, this is a, um, it's really been redone. It's been um, enhanced 
graphically uh, through computer aid. Uh, this is one of the walls. Uh, it's a wall painting as you come through a doorway. And uh, up at the top, you can see the guy apparently out. He, can you tell what he's doing? I don't know if you'll guess. He, he's clearly got a hold of a, some sort of rope or string, right? And the rope or string goes through something that's at least partially solid. And then it goes out and it is connected to what type of birds? Can you tell? They're ducks or maybe geese. And so if you look at it really closely, it seems as if he's got some sort of net arrangement that he is waiting in a blind until the right moment and then he's going to pull this and all of these birds are going to get caught in the net or a sub significant amount of them are going to get caught in the net. Uh, which is interesting because we have Bible passages that talk about catching birds with nets. Uh, that that was a, a, a pretty big deal. And so they would eat these things. Uh, over here on this side, uh, you can see someone, maybe it was him when he was younger. He's on a reed boat. Can you see the boat underneath his feet? And then off to the right of the boat is a whole bunch of reeds standing up. So what they've done is they've cut down those reeds and they've braided them and twisted them until they have like a boat that they can ride on. Uh, that was very common transportation on the Nile, uh, reed boats. And he's caught some birds and he's got a big club in the top. Looks like he's about to whack them, okay? Uh, because they're probably gonna be what's for dinner. Uh, and then down below the boat, in the water, you can see different types of fish. You also see what appears to be a crocodile. And I don't know why the water buffalo is in the, inside the water, but it is in the water. Uh, and then you've got a whole bunch of people, they're fishing again. Uh, they've actually got hold of a rope that goes down around the net that's underneath the water and surrounding all the fish and they're gonna catch those fish and bring them up because there's gonna be some fish for dinner. Uh, one of the things the Israelis will whine about in the wilderness is how they had so much fish available for them when they were living as slaves back in Egypt. Uh, and uh, they missed all of that while they were out. And, and what were they complaining about eating? The manna. We've got nothing but this manna. No fish dinners. Uh, over on this other side of the panel, again, you've got him, somebody, probably him, uh, out in his little white kilt on his reed boat, and he's spearing fish. Uh, and uh, you've got a bunch of birds up there as well, showing all the types of birds that are down by the, the Nile. Down at the bottom, you see several reed boats, right? With a whole bunch of people on these reed boats. Those are probably some of the people working for him. I cannot figure this out. There is a guy that is being stretched between two of the reed boats. And I don't know if they're trying to rescue him or if they're throwing him into the river or if they are like finding a dead body and this is like a murder mystery in process. I don't know. It's really weird. There's some, they've clearly got hold of him from two different boats and he's all stretched out. Uh, and it's, I, I'd love to know the backstory to that. It's probably something from his life that he said, I want that up on the wall because that was an interesting thing. So anyway, uh, so, this is the sort of things that I want you to file away in your memory bank so that when you hear the Bible stories about Israel and Egypt and all of that sort of stuff, you can kind of picture some of the things that were going on. Uh, you know about the little white skirt. You know that they mostly went without any type of shirt. And this guy's not wearing any shoes, obviously. 
He's got his little fake beard on, right? And his little fake hair cap, his hair cap on, or maybe just a cap. But he's got that nice gold necklace, which was a symbol of his office, more than likely. Because the guy whose tomb this is, uh, is a very high-placed um, leader within Egypt. Uh, so in the book of, of Genesis, chapter number 47, the last thing that we were talking about was how Jacob came down and he was settled in the land um, at Pharaoh's direction and Joseph's suggestion. Uh, they're all settled in the land of Goshen, which is in the eastern side of the delta. And then Joseph starts providing everything they need to live off of uh, because they're his family and he's well-to-do. I mean, he's the number two guy in the kingdom. Uh, so he's got more than enough to take care of them. But what's going on right now? I mean, what's the big story in Egypt at the time that Jacob and his family came? It's the big famine. Do you remember what year it is? Of the famine, not, you know, AC, not BC. What year of the famine is it? It's year number two. So how many total are they supposed to have? Seven. So do your math. How many are left? Five more years. Five more years of famine. Uh, now they had five really spectacular good years uh, right before the famine started. And some of the people were able to put things away. Uh, but it turns out that the Egyptian people uh, did not put enough away in order to get them through all seven years of the famine. And so the next part of the story that we have uh, is how the government of Egypt changed. Uh, from what it had been for a long time to what it is uh, whenever, um, e whenever uh, the Israelis leave Egypt 430 years later. Now let me describe how Egypt was running before the famine. Egypt was, you know, all this long part of the Jordan River, not the Jordan, the, the Nile River. So it's a big, long ribbon of green uh, with the great big delta uh, up in the north. And there are different regions, as you might expect, in that 800-some miles of the river. Uh, now, we refer to these regions now as gnomes, N-O-M-E. Uh, S as the plural. That's not what the Israel, or not what the Egyptians called them. Um, that's a a Greek term about a law district, okay? And the people that ran them, we refer to them as nomarchs. Another Greek compound word, the ruler of a legal region. Uh, so the way that Egypt was set up was that. Every area had a, a person who was in control of that area, kind of ran it, was the law for that region. Pharaoh was kind of the ultimate um, legal guy who made deals and bargains and alliances with these gnome arcs, with these regional leaders. He was not fully in charge of them, though, because they were powerful people. I mean, they were the ones that took taxes from their own region. Uh, and uh, the only way that Pharaoh got a hold of any of that money was through deals with them. So that was the way that everything was set up before the famine hit. We know historically that right around this time in the 12th dynasty, 
a series of pharaohs consolidated the power of the central throne over all of these nomarchs, over all of these regional leaders, so that suddenly he is totally and completely in charge, and they answer to him. And so we're about to read how that happened. And Joseph is right at the center of it. All right, so any questions or comments before we read the text for tonight? Nope? Okay. Genesis 47, 13. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. So my guess is that we're now talking about maybe year four or so, so that things have really gotten serious. People have eaten up uh, the reserves that they actually had. And now they're starting to feel uh, the pinch of running out of supplies. Uh, so Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Okay, so this is before coinage. So they, they paid in some form of gold or silver. In Egypt, apparently, they didn't make just lumps of gold or silver. They made little rings of them. And so when the, when the Egyptians themselves start running out of supplies, they start buying from Joseph the grain that he has stored up. And he, they start paying in the gold and silver that they've got sitting around. And so this is how uh, all of that money transfers from the different regions into the central treasury of Egypt, uh, down in the wrist of the delta at the capital city. Uh, and that includes the regional leaders, because they have to have food for their people as well. And so they are starting to give up all of their cash reserves. Now, what's the danger of using up all your cash reserves? Yeah, uh, what happens if the crisis continues longer uh, and you're, you're caught without cash reserves? You have to start liquidating other assets, right? And so that's what we see next. It says in verse 15, When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? Our money is gone. So all their gold and silver reserves, they disappeared the last time. But they're still needing supplies because the famine's still going on. And so they come to Joseph and say, we've got to make a deal. We don't have any more cash. We don't have any, no more silver and gold. But we still need some of those supplies that you've got stored up. So Joseph said to them, give up your livestock and I'll give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they... Uh, brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So he's just now bought up all of the animals. Now, this is not just simply food sources, are they? What else are these animals being used for? Transport. Yeah, this is transportation. And not just that. It's muscle power uh, for putting the crops in. Yes. 
Yeah, the, the donkeys and uh, oxen and things are used for muscle power to, uh, th- to thresh the grain. Uh, but they're also used to do muscle power for tilling the ground and pumping water. Because they have a system where it's like a, a bucket Ferris wheel. And it's got a gear system. And so you got a donkey going round and round in circles, and it's running a gear system, which is running a Ferris wheel, which is bringing the water up in buckets and dumping it out. And uh, all of those animals now belong to Pharaoh. So he now doesn't, he doesn't just simply have all the grain supplies, you know, all of the reserve grain supplies, He's got all the gold and silver supply, and now he's got all the transportation. He's got all the muscle power. He's just, he's just consolidating everything underneath his singular control. Uh, when the year ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and that the cattle are my Lord's. There's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. So now they're in the final stages of assets. They have their property. Uh, All of these nomarchs, as we call them, all of these regional leaders owned territory. And then they had people nearby that were also private landowners. But those people need grain. They have no gold. They have no silver. They have no animals left. So the only two things that are left as trade for grain is their land, which they give up, and themselves. And so uh, they said, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for food? We and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. Um, If your population dies off, you don't really have a country anymore, do you? Because the people are the country. It's not just simply the property. So, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. So that's exactly the time frame that we know historically all of this happened. Exactly as the, as the Bible says. The pharaohs consolidated all control underneath the singular crown. And it wasn't just the fact that they were the king. They owned it all. They were the property owner. It now belongs to the royal family. Um, as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Now, that's something else of interest. Um, He urbanized the people. Uh, He doesn't want everybody working in agriculture anymore. You know, once the famine is over, he will have only the workforce working the farms that he feels is necessary. So what are the rest of the people going to be doing Yeah, whatever he says. Building his stuff. He will give them jobs. Uh, So the government system of Egypt is changing radically during this period of time. And Joseph is right at the forefront of it. Uh, Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh They lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them, and therefore they did not sell their land. Uh, The priests didn't own their land anyway. Um, 
Pharaoh was looked at as being a divine relative. <laughs> he's a relative of the gods. Uh, he's an earthly son of the gods, if you want to put it that way. Okay? Yeah, he, he's like a god in the making, if you want to think of it. Uh, the Egyptians, for years and years and years, thought of their pharaoh as a god on earth, which is kind of stupid because, well, he's, he's clearly not a god, right? Um, but that's the way they thought of it. And so because they thought of it that way, uh, the priests kind of worked for pharaoh. He was the earthly representation of the gods. Uh, and so they worked for him, and so he was already providing them a place to stay and food to eat and things of that nature. And uh, you don't tax those that already work for the government. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're already paying them out of taxes, right? So why tax them? So they don't. They are tax immune. Um, but also, the land uh, for all of the different temples is tax-immune as well. Because you don't tax gods. Because that's rude. Right? Uh, so, this is, uh, this is the reality of the ancient world, and it actually becomes a reality in the Christian world as well. Churches have long been tax immune. And uh, it's changed more recently on that. It used to be that they didn't have to pay any type of taxes. Uh, but there are some taxes that churches are having to pay nowadays. Uh, or you have to jump through hoops in order to not pay those taxes. Like, we can get a tax exemption for any purchases we make for the church, but it is a pain in the rear to do it. And so sometimes we just go ahead and pay the taxes on it anyway. Um, but this is all part of the ancient world being brought up into the modern times. Uh, but uh, next thing says, Joseph said to the people, Today I uh, bought you and your land from, for Pharaoh, now, therefore, here is seed for you that you may sow the land. At the harvest, you shall give a fifth, or 20%, to Pharaoh, and four-fifths, or 80%, shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. Now, if those numbers sound familiar, That's, that was the setup during the uh, good years. Everybody in Egypt was taxed 20% of their income, grain-wise, supply-wise, uh, for the seven years. And so Joseph is just taking those same numbers, and now he's applying it to a system that we know better um, by the terminology used to describe the medieval period. You guys know about feudalism, right? Could you describe feudalism if you were asked to do so? To whom did the land belong in feudalism? In England, we'll use England as the best example. Right, but who ultimately owned it? The king ultimately owned it. But he had lords underneath him that he gave certain areas to and said, now, make that area productive and send me a certain part of it. And so what did the Lord do? The Lord in his region would identify certain people and say, I'm going to give you this piece of property. You're going to be my tenant. 
and you are going to produce. And I get, we'll use the terms here, 20%, and you may live off the balance for yourself. But what happens if you do something that he doesn't like? You can be kicked off your tendency. You can be evicted, and somebody else will be put into the place. So this is, this is the typical way of feudalism. Do people own the property? No, absolutely not. It is not theirs. They are only living by the permission of higher authorities to live on that property and to use it. Now that is interesting to me because in the scripture, that is exactly the way that it is looked at when Israel goes into the land. The land belongs to God. It is divvied up into regions for the tribes, and then that is divvied up into regions for the families, and then that is further subdivided into individual farms or holdings for families uh, to live on, and they get to plant their crops and raise their crops and have their animals. But every year, they are expected to give how much to God? Do you know? 10%. So half of what Joseph is setting up here for the Egyptians. Uh, and, but the property ultimately belongs to God. Uh, now, <clears throat> there is a problem that can arise in that what if some of the Israelis don't use the land well and they fall on hard times? Well, they can sell the, they can kind of sublet the piece of property by selling the future prosperity of that piece of property to somebody else so that they've got cash to pay their debts or whatever. But every 50th year, all those tenancy agreements revert back to the original arrangements because the land never belonged to anybody privately. It all belonged to God. Every 50th year is when the land contracts uh, reset. Every seventh year, uh, any type of work contracts were reset. Uh, this will be talked about you know, as, as slavery, basically, because if you get yourself in debt, you have to sell your workability to somebody else. You know, somebody else has to cover your debts, and you sell your work to them. In other countries, in other nations, that, that selling of yourself into slavery was open-ended. It would kind of be left up to um, your master as to whether or not your debt was paid off. But God did not leave that to be the case in Israel. God said, there's a seven-year cycle. Every seventh year, all slavery indebtedness is canceled. And so this kept the Jewish society from imploding in on itself financially because everything gets reset on a regular basis to keep people from building up uh, continual debts or trying to um, run a monopoly on everything. Could anybody in Israel ever take full control of the land? Not under the system that God set up because the land already belonged to him and therefore every 50th year, everything went back to the original arrangements. 
So you could not uh, become a, a, a monopoly owner of everything in Israel. Yes, exactly correct. Uh, you pointed out something that's in the, in the scripture. It says that if you've got a neighbor that's falling on hard times, uh, they actually did a little bit different than what you were describing. God says, don't you dare take in consideration that it's the sixth year of the cycle and refuse to help them out. You help them out anyway, because that's the right thing to do. Um, the, the land contracts, because that's basically what it was, was always based on the, um, how many harvests could be gotten out of land in the period until the next sabbatical cycle. Uh, so if you felt like you needed cash and you had land that you were the tenant on, you could sell you know, five harvests. I'll sell you this piece of land for five harvests because there's five years left until the sabbatical year. And you'd set in a, a certain fund on that and, and that's the way it worked. Or the 50th year would be the ultimate one they'd look at. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't matter because all the, all the hereditary lines went back to their original set. So it's a little bit hard to sort out because, of course, the first generations are dead, right? So it's all their great, great, great grandkids uh, that are going to be the ones that receive that property back into their control. And so the most senior person is going to be the one that divvies up that piece of property amongst the new generation. But it goes back to that family line. This is, this is why it was really important to know who inherited what. You know, who's the firstborn son and the legitimacy of each of the lines. That is exactly why their generations were so important, their genealogies were so important, is because everything reverted every 50 years back to the original hereditary line. Yeah. Oh yeah, they had courts and things that kept track of this. Uh, and you actually have some stories in the scripture that deal with this. Uh, you remember the story of Ruth, right? Ruth and Boaz and all of that? That was basically a hereditary court system where uh, Ruth's, Ruth was the daughter-in-law uh, of um, Naomi. Naomi's husband had apparently either abandoned or sold off the tenancy rights to his piece of property because the famine was going on for, for that period of time. And then he moved off to Moab. When Ruth came back later, that farm was, of course, being run by somebody else. And so she doesn't get to go and live there. That's, that's not her right anymore. And so she then comes up with this idea that if Ruth can find a redeemer husband from the same family line, then that redeemer husband can can redeem the piece of property back into the family early. You know, if the 50th year came up, it'd go back anyway, but apparently it wasn't close enough. And so that's where Boaz says, well, yes, I am a close relative, and I could do all of this, and I really want to, because I want to marry Ruth. But he says, there's somebody else that's closer. He has the first right of um, refusal, if you will. And so he goes to his cousin, he says, hey, the piece of property that Naomi uh, had through, because of her husband is up for redemption. You've got first choice to do it. Do you want it? He says, yes, I want it. 
I'll go and redeem it. And he goes, now you understand you have to marry Ruth in order to get it. And he goes, no, I don't want to marry Ruth. He goes, okay, then you have to refuse officially to marry Ruth, and uh, then I get the chance to do all this. And he says, fine. There you go. Now you're like, what? He took off his sandal and handed it to Boaz? The reason for that actually was an insult earlier <laughs> in history. Because what was supposed to happen is, if the close relative refused to marry the widow and redeem the property, she was supposed to rip his sandal off and spit in his face and say, how dare you? And from then on, he was supposed to be known in Israel by the insult uh, term, the one whose sandal was ripped off and spat in the face. But it was weird because they, they kind of did away with the negativity of it and said it was just a, the normal procedure that the shoe was taken off during the whole transfer of the deed. Uh, we used to have the whole thing about, you know, you had to do certain things when you had deed changes about for a dollar and other considerations and things along that line. It, you know, it was just cultural things. Now, the reason I'm bringing, shake the hand used to be the simple way, but you need other things now. Um, the reason I'm bringing all this up about Israel is because Egypt's new system is similar to what Israel ends up with except for one huge difference, and that is who's ultimately in charge. In Egypt, it will be a human being who thinks he's a god on earth. In Israel, it's supposed to be the god of heaven. And, and the, his law that he gives to Israel is supposed to control all of these things. Uh, the system is quite workable, but it is not like our system here in the United States, is it? Because what are we really big into? Private property, right? Uh, we don't have anything where every 50 years everybody gets sent back to their family homesteads, right? I mean, how many of you live in the exact same piece of property that your great-grandparents lived in? What, nobody? The Israelis did. The Egyptians did. See, they, they had a lot of connection with a specific piece of property. But here in the United States, we're very individualistic. And so we've moved a lot. I mean, how many of you live uh, in the exact same place where you were born? I mean, not house-wise, but I mean region-wise. Any of you? South Bend, Elkhart. So the region, you're still in the same area. But the rest of you are probably from six, seven hundred miles away from at least, even more. You're Mishawaka, so it's the same general vicinity. See, so you're, you're in Ohio, you're a whole other state away, and you live here. I mean, there's two states away from where I grew up, where she grew up. So we have a totally different society here, so we have a hard time relating to a lot of this stuff, I think. Um, we also put a very high uh, standard on the idea of personal property, property rights. Uh, this is my property, and nobody else better be getting on this, unless, of course, they want to buy it from me, in which case I want the best possible price for it, right? Uh, so we have to kind of get that out of our head when we're studying the Scripture as to how this works. Now, how do you feel about the system that Joseph is setting up here? Well, uh, they're basically selling their work. 
Now, what do they get for it? They get a piece of property that they can live on, and they get to keep 80% of their work product. Is that such a bad deal? That's a fairly decent deal, right? Oh, yeah, it's GI is government issue. Yeah. Now, if, if, if the king of Egypt or the local representative of the king decided that they wanted to move you to a different job, then you wouldn't have a choice in it. You'd be told you got to move. But you'd still be working and getting 80% of your work product left in your own hands which is not a bad deal, honestly. Yeah, you're not starving. Unless, of course, a big famine comes along. Right. And in, none of these, no government is perfect. All of us understand that, right? No government system has ever been devised that is perfect. All of them have problems. Um, glaring problems. But this feudal system has some protections in it. In, um, in medieval Europe, um, the lord of the land was expected to protect you. So a police force, basically, was supposed to keep you from being harmed they would have had something similar to that in this system. Because it's not beneficial to have your workforce harmed, is it? It's to your benefit to keep all of your workers healthy and productive because you get 20% of their work product. Do you want to talk anything about theory of government? Since, since we're on the topic? What would you consider the best possible government? Anarchy? No king but King Jesus. No king but King Jesus. Everybody's afraid to have this discussion. Yes, sir. The United States is set up as a constitutional republic which uses uh, limited democratic methodology uh, for representative government. But it immediately started running into problems uh, as the country grew. Uh, at one time, uh, we were supposed to have, I think, something like one representative for every 30,000 persons in the population. That got abandoned a long time ago because if it had been kept up, we would have had 7,000 people or more in the House of Representatives. Yeah, I mean, with the 400 and whatever it is, they can't even get along now. Um, at one, at the original intention was that the House of Representatives was supposed to represent the will of the individual people. And the Senate was supposed to represent the desires of the states. Is that the way it's set up anymore? No. Senators are now uh, voted on by the people, not by the state governments. And so both the senators and the representatives are campaigning with the people, which means that they have to make promises to the people in order to get into power. So yeah, there's some glaring problems. And some of it is because uh, original intention was 
um, of abandoned. Uh, you understand that the, um, the reason for the um, college of electors, which is the group that's supposed to choose the president, it was supposed to take popularity out of the equation. Because the idea was, if all the people will send a representative from their limited group off to this college of electors and they'll get alone by themselves and just talk about it, they will come up with the best possible person to um, take the role of president for four years and the number two person that they vote on will be vice president. That was the original intention. And it worked really well for the first two administrations because who was it that this college of electors decided should be the president? George Washington. But when the third administration was being selected, it became a popularity contest again. And they fought. And they've been fighting about it ever since. And the party systems uh, are now um, part of the problem. Yeah, the Electoral College is not understood by most people as to what its original intention was. I would submit to you that our founding fathers were being a little naive when they set it up the way they did. I think that they did not consider how quickly the party system could set in and cause trouble. They believed it would be better than that, but hey, all of us sometimes have good intentions that go bad, right? Yeah, you were going to say something else? No. Well, that was the reason for the Senate and, um, and representative, House of Representatives split. Um, all of the states would have the exact same representation in the Senate, uh, but the larger states would have more representatives representing their concerns. The Electoral College was also based on population, and so the larger states would have a little bit more representation in voting in the Electoral College. Over time, they started fiddling with it, where it's like winner-take-all in some of them. But that was not its original intent. The original intent was supposed to have a group of people that were trusted voting uh, over a limited number of names, and the top two winners would be president and vice president. Yeah, regardless of any party system that might not have, that might have been in place. How do you feel about monarchies? What's the danger with monarchies? Right, because the next generation might not be as good as the original one you had, right? Um, and then people are tempted to take matters into their own hand, which is what happened in Rome. In Rome, they started saying, well, this family is deteriorated really badly. We don't want them anymore, so off with their heads and let's start with a new family, let's start a new dynasty. That's what I'm saying. There's, there is no good government system except for one, and that would be God being in absolute control, which is not going to happen until this Earth's history is finished. Yeah, Randy? Well, um, I've heard people try to say that uh, republics usually last about 200 years or so. 
I, I don't know that they can really determine all of that sort of stuff. One of the worst forms of government, you have to understand, would be a pure democracy. It's just too burdensome because this is what a pure democracy is about. Every time you decide something, everybody has to get together and talk about it and then vote. Would you like to do that? Every time there's any decision made, everybody in the area has to get together and talk about it and then vote. I hate going to meetings. You know, especially if it's going to involve a whole big discussion about some decision that has to be made and then we're going to vote on it. It's just a pain. Now imagine doing that on a national level. And originally, it was only men that had property were involved in the voting system in a democracy. And part of that was just the fact that they were supposed to be representing like a family. Um, but then when you start expanding it outward from there, every citizen gets together, whew, it's just unwieldy. Plus, it's 50% plus one is all it takes to win. Now, how happy would you be if you were on the losing side of that? By one. By one. What? One person is the only one that made the difference in this? I don't think that's fair. Well, no, it's not. But it's democracy. <laughs> that's democracy in its ultimate form. Now, we already talked about the fact that we actually live in a it is technically referred to as a constitutional republic, but it is also a representational democracy. What's meant by that? It means that not all of us get together and vote about everything. We vote to send representatives up there to follow certain rules to do things on our behalf. And even that's unwieldy at times, as we already talked about because we can't have 7,000 people in the House of Representatives. I, I wanted to delve into some of this, even if it made you a little uncomfortable, because of the fact that some people get bent out of shape when they see what Joseph does here. Because they're thinking, well, that doesn't sound very free to me. Sounds like he's making slaves of them. He's, he's given all the power to, to Pharaoh. Yeah. But the reason most Americans object to those sorts of things is because they don't understand this system actually was working pretty well for them. That's another thing to be understood about government. Um, is that governments will very often morph during times of crisis and take more power to themselves. And then, you know this is a maxim, power once taken is seldom relinquished. Uh, in both Greek and Roman society, uh, they, would reserve, they would resort from time to time to the idea of a tyrant. A tyrant is basically an emergency singular leader. And very often the tyrants would have a hard time letting go of that once the emergency was passed. Yes. Uh, Russia is technically a representative republic. But in reality, it's more of an oligarchy. Oligarchy means rule by few. Um, and so he is the head of the oligarchy. He is the oligarch of the oligarchs. or poisoned, or they fall out of an uh, upper story window, or their airplane blows up in the sky. Yes. Yes, not good. I listened to the remarks of uh, Alexei Navalny's, uh, uh, 
widow today at Stockholm. And it was a damning critique of uh, Putin and telling the Europeans you cannot trust him and what you really need to do is support Ukraine because Ukraine is the thorn in his side right now. If, if he cannot win Ukraine, he may lose power. That's the reality of it. And I think we need to be paying attention to things like that. that my opinion. Uh, but I wanted you to see government here that Joseph put in place that is going to be very useful uh, for the Egyptians, uh, but it will also be their downfall 430 years later. Because when it comes time for God to redeem the Egyptian slaves, known as the Israelis, out of Egypt, he doesn't have to break the power base of a whole bunch of different regional leaders he breaks the power base of one. That's all it takes. Because all that power has been centralized in one place. And uh, when, you, when you put more and more and more and more power into one location, the risk is always that that person or group may fail under stress and then everything falls apart. They were still living under the feudal system that we talked. Most of the time, we don't refer to feudal systems as being slavery. even though they do not have all the free choices. It would basically be two tiers of slaves, yep. You'd have the feudal system, and then you would have the slaves who didn't have any choice, uh, and they didn't get to keep, you know, 80% of their work product. 100% of their work product went to, um, to the kingdom. That was the really big difference. All right, so enough theory of government for this week. Uh, when we come back next week, we will move into the future about 17 years. Um, we'll get past the famine, and we'll start talking about uh, the death, the impending death of Jacob, uh, and how... Um, Prophetically, God uses him to prepare the Israelis for what will happen over the next four centuries. Uh, to prepare them for going back home. See, it's weird. They're going to live in Egypt for 430 years. So you'd think Egypt's actually their home, right? But their home is not Egypt. It's Canaan. And What's that? Well, they will be told stories over and over and over again, you know, about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Um, but I think you'll understand why it was that the Israelis had such a hard time letting go of Egypt. Because even if they were slaves, they had really felt that it was their home when it wasn't. They needed to go back to their promised land. And this is why Egypt and the Israelis get used as examples for us as Christians, is because this world is not our home, is it? Our home is eternity with God. We've never been there. <laughs> but that's home. And so that's why it's so hard to let go of this. Because this is what we know. Reminds me of that preacher. He was preaching and preaching about going to heaven and going into the presence of God. And 
How many of you here are excited? You want to go? And everybody raised their hand except one guy. And he, and he tried several different times to get this guy to raise his hand. He still wouldn't raise his hand. So he talked to him later. He says, don't you understand what I was talking about? I'm talking about us going to be with the Lord. He says, well, I thought you were getting up a group to go now. And I don't want to go yet. See, that's where we're at, right? We're kind of hung in here in Egypt. And we're not ready to bug out for the promised land. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for the time we got to spend looking in the scripture and kind of um, using it to think and talk about some of the things going on in our lives and our world. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, not hold on so tightly to the things of this world because we know this place is not our home. We're just, we're just tenant farmers here. Um, we know one of these days you're going to bring us to the real place uh, where we're going to spend eternity. Uh, so help us not to hold on so tight. Help us to have a great rest of this week and may this Lord's Day be a great Lord's Day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.